0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Quite a twist. Who'd have thought COVID might make us less prepared for the next pandemic?
1: I think that the common misconception about mutations in any sort of infectious agent is that things naturally evolve to be less infectious. And that's not true. We're one mutation away from a really terrible run with COVID. This is why public health vigilance is really important and public health measures are really important. And unfortunately, what we've seen is after the worst of the pandemic, much of the country has dismantled their public health infrastructure. That does worry me on an ongoing basis.
0: A COVID checkup four years in. Plus, when temperatures fell this past weekend, so did many weather records. A regular chat with Denver Seven's Mike Nelson.
1: The majority of CPR supporters now give monthly as Evergreen members. I am an Evergreen member of Colorado Public Radio because it was easy. I just went online, signed up, and now it just comes out of my account every month, and I don't even have to think about it.
2: I don't have to make the decision next year to pay again in a lump sum. It's just easier just to pay a little bit at a time every month.
1: Thank you to CPR Evergreen members for your sustaining support of Colorado Public Radio.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Do you remember what you were doing around this time four years ago, right before everything changed?
1: Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. At least 59 people are believed to have been sickened by the new virus. Tonight, U.S. airports on high alert, screening passengers for symptoms of a deadly new virus.
0: A montage from NBC. A few weeks later, Colorado's governor held an emergency press
3: conference. This afternoon, I was notified that we have the first presumptive positive case of novel coronavirus, also known as COVID-19, in the state of Colorado.
0: The virus popped up in mountain resort towns first, then about a week later. At his press conference earlier today, Governor Polis said there were three Coloradans with COVID-19 in critical condition. Sadly, one of those people has passed away, and that person was a resident of El Paso County. The deceased was a woman in her 80s with underlying health conditions. 15,000 Coloradans would die from COVID 19. Today, a look back and a look ahead at the four year mark. In our studio, health reporter John Daly. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. And with us remotely, Dr. Anuj Mehta, he's a pulmonary care physician at Denver Health and a member of the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force. Welcome back, doctor. Thank you so much. Fitting you'd be remote since the pandemic issued forth so much of that. Uh, But John, first to you, do you have an early pandemic memory or story that stands out?
2: I do. On March 26th, Governor Polis issued a mandatory stay-at-home order. We could only leave for activities critical to our health and safety. If you worked in health care, for instance, or you needed medical care yourself, or to get food.
0: Yeah, I'd never experienced anything like it. There were big concerns that too many cases could overwhelm hospitals. There was that shortage of PPE, personal protective equipment.
2: The governor did lift it about a month later saying we'd bought enough time for the health system to build capacity. And I did a story right about that time about a guy from Lone Tree, Jason Jahanian. He's young, about 40, super healthy guy. He ran half marathons, really got sick. In those early weeks, he got COVID and ended up very ill, on a ventilator, fighting to survive. I remember thinking, wow, if Jason could get it and end up fighting for his life in the hospital, anybody could. Also, he did survive, thanks to his fight and dedicated frontline providers at Medical Center of Aurora Then the scene when he was released, all the hospital workers giving him high fives as he was wheeled out.
1: And then when I popped out of that elevator and I rounded the corner, there was, geez, probably 40, 50 people there.
2: You know, it was just a moving, we're all in it together kind of moment. Dr. Mehta, any early pandemic memory
0: that stands out for you?
1: Yes, I remember very distinctly, it was March, my twin daughters had turned four in February. So it was March of 2020. Mm-hmm. My wife is a healthcare worker as well. And we were out on a walk with the dog while the kids were in preschool before they'd shut down schools. And we had a very serious conversation about filling out our wills, and how my wife would manage the kids if I were to catch COVID and die. That's the most distinct earliest memory I have of the pandemic was facing my own mortality.
0: Ugh. And and at that point, like in hindsight, you know, I can imagine someone thinking, well that seems a bit dramatic, but at the time, I mean it was just you you just didn't know.
1: We didn't know, and what we do know is actually we lost a lot of healthcare workers in that early time frame. Not a lot in Colorado, but it wasn't zero. But when you look to Seattle, when you look to New York City, and other places, we lost a lot of healthcare workers that were on the front lines, a lot of EMS and firefighters who were responding to people at home who were sick without any of the PPE. Mm-hmm. Um, so I luckily braved through it fine, as did all of my colleagues, but early on, we we just didn't know.
0: No, Well, I'm wrong to have called it dramatic even in retrospect, I appreciate that perspective.
2: Ryan, what stands out for you about that time? I mean,
0: I guess in contrast to your stories, I'll reflect on the silver linings, if there is such a thing to a pandemic. I fought my loneliness by adopting a pet, a cat. And I guess Bob is the best kind of side effect. Um, To be honest, I miss the lawn meals that I had with friends, distanced, in a circle, sometimes moving our chairs to stay in the sun as long as we could before retreating to our own lonely spaces. I think that I was so hungry for connection. Anytime I got it,
2: it, you know, it stood out to me.
0: Four years later, John, and we're in a very different place, aren't we?
2: Yeah, I think we are. Uh, Let's open up the state dashboard we're so accustomed to looking at. If you uh, type into a browser, Colorado COVID-19 data, and you'll see uh, the very first prominent graph there. It says currently hospitalized. The 246. Latest, no, yeah, 246, right. 246. And then if you click over on the left hand side, it says hospital data. Click on that. Okay. And you can see the curve for the entire pandemic. And the far right is where we are now. Look at how that compares to the peaks of the pandemic. You have three
0: peaks, it looks like, each with about 1,500 Coloradans hospitalized with COVID. So that was, what, 2020, 2021, and 2022.
2: And in terms of deaths, December 2020 was the peak. Nearly 1,700 Coloradans died that month. People are still dying from COVID. In November, the number was
1: 162. It's a totally different situation. In 2020, almost everybody in our ICU was there with respiratory failure from COVID. Hmm. And it's just a Different point at this moment. I was in the ICU last week, and we had one or two patients with COVID. We had a lot of patients with influenza and other respiratory problems as well, but we're back to that kind of wide variety. We just don't have the burden of COVID-19 in the hospital and in the ICU as we did much earlier. And people were
0: avoiding coming in for other stuff, right? They were delaying care because they were afraid of catching COVID in those settings. We referred to that, I remember, as slowvid.
1: Yes, completely agree. We were seeing people presenting with heart attacks and strokes and multiple other non-COVID-related medical problems far later in the natural history of those illnesses than we were used to. And now people are, you know, we are hoping showing up to the emergency department when they need to.
0: When people are hospitalized with COVID these days, is it
1: that they're unvaccinated? We are seeing a lot of people who are unvaccinated or patients who have not received the most recent vaccines. We know that the vaccines no longer protect us from getting any COVID infection. You can still get a mild illness from COVID. But the vaccines are really good at preventing people from getting hospitalized uh, or dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a little bit higher preponderance of people that have not received the most recent updates.
0: Right. So it's not just a question of vaccinated or unvaccinated, but are you current as well? And exactly, as we reflect back on this timeline, John, the arrival of vaccines makes a difference. Speak to that.
2: Well, for sure, you know, it was mid-December of 2020. That's the same month as Colorado's peaks in deaths. And myself and other members of the press were there as the governor waited for the first doses at the state lab in Denver.
0: We are about to receive the very first vaccine shipment here in Colorado. Uh, A FedEx truck is going to pull up and we're going to open the door. This is the life-saving vaccine uh, that is about to arrive. (sighs) I remember that milestone and then thinking, how do I get in line? (laughs) Dr. Mehta, how big a difference did vaccines make? How quickly and like what else contributed to the better place we're in today?
1: Oh, vaccines were a game changer. When the first vaccines came out, the efficacy against preventing any COVID infection and especially severe illness and death i mean they were home runs and obviously as we've dealt with more variants and more mutations that's changed slightly but they continue to be really effective at preventing hospitalization and death and soon after the vaccines came out we started seeing a split the people in the hospital were those that had chosen not to get vaccinated or couldn't get vaccinated or didn't have access to the vaccine Uh, and now it's a little bit different because it's a question of are you up to date on the vaccines but I also remember, if we're thinking about memories, I remember walking out after my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine in December 2020. And that feeling of, it was actually joy uh, Mm. to have gotten my first dose and knowing that the second dose was three weeks away.
0: What did we learn about treating COVID in hospitals that improved people's outcomes?
1: We learned a lot about How to manage patients with respiratory failure, how to manage patients who were on the ventilators, those breathing machines for a long time, and how to help people rehab afterwards. A lot of it we knew, and what we did was disseminate that information better. So smaller hospitals started adopting best practices that maybe larger hospitals were doing. And so the high-quality care that you might have gotten at a major university hospital or at Denver Health, that we started to see throughout country. And and I think that really led to an improvement in survival as well. What's one example?
0: I I remember, I think it was someone from Denver Health who said that it was a game changer simply what position the patient was in when they were lying down.
1: That's exactly it. We call it prone ventilation or having a breathing tube, but being on your belly in the hospital bed. I sleep on my belly, but this is kind of having a patient who's on a breathing machine on their belly in the hospital bed. And we actually knew since 2013 that that position was very beneficial for patients that had severe injury to their lung. It just hadn't been disseminated As well, there were many hospitals that weren't doing that, despite the evidence, Hmm. partially because of fear of flipping somebody on their belly and tubes coming out and things. There was, you know, logistical issues. But I think the clear benefits of that position, that type of ventilation became well known during COVID. It was in the mass media. It wasn't new that we learned. But there's a big issue in healthcare. It's not you just can't just learn the information. You have to disseminate the information, and it has to be adopted. And that's kind of where we saw a lot of the care for patients with COVID nineteen who were in the ICU changing over time. When does
0: Paxlovid enter the picture, and how much of a game changer was it, Dr. Meta?
1: Paxlovid entered. Uh, oh, I forget when it was approved, and it made a difference. It was the first thing that people at home who had COVID nineteen could do. So. These are patients who had already been diagnosed with COVID-19, and they're home, and now there was a medication that would reduce their chances of ending up in the hospital or dying, regardless of whether they were up to date on the vaccines. And so the idea of being able to take a pill at home, I think, normalized a little bit of having COVID-19 at home and gave some people who may not have been able to take the vaccine or who had other immune problems where the vaccine might not work, it gave them another option to try and avoid getting severely ill once they were diagnosed with COVID-19.
0: Gosh, I just looked this up. It was rather late, John. May 25th, 2023? No. I took it before then.
1: I think that's when the FDA approval came through. Yes, that's right. I think, but I think that it was under an emergency use authorization, just like the vaccine, okay. well before that. Yeah, got That's it. another term that I think became very common during the pandemic, is emergency use authorizations, or
0: EUAs. How quickly years can pass and yet still feel like a slog. We're getting a four-year COVID checkup in Colorado with our health reporter John Daly and lung doctor Anuj Mehta, who's a member of Colorado's Vaccine Equity Task Force. Back to the state dashboard. Hospitalizations now are relatively low. But the positivity rate, John, that we used to worry about at 5% is now
2: double that. Yeah, exactly. And we know that most people are not testing. So I think that's considered maybe not as reliable of a gauge as it used to be. You know, we also know there's this fast spreading JN1 subvariant. It's making its way around and infecting more and more people in Colorado and the U.S. Here's what the state epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Hurley, recently told me.
1: There certainly is a lot of COVID-19 circulating right now. There's actually a lot of influenza as well right now. We're probably fairly close to peak influenza levels right now as well.
2: Also, look at the COVID wastewater levels. The majority of utilities are reporting a steady increase in COVID found in wastewater. And you can see that on the state dashboard too. Mm.
0: When Dr. Hurley, he speaks of both flu and COVID, I'm reminded, Dr. Meta, of that term Twin-demic, remember when that
1: came up? Oh, yes, I do. Or triple-demic if you include RSV. Yeah. Let's keep it at... Can we keep it at twin already? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most of us
0: probably know someone who caught COVID over the holidays or, you know, may have themselves. So what what is going on right now, Dr. Meta?
1: We are definitely seeing an increase in all respiratory illnesses. So as I said, I was in the ICU uh, about a week and a half ago, and I saw more cases of influenza that landed people in the intensive care unit than COVID. But we also know that COVID continues to be a major issue. I know that the national media was reporting in December, the average mortality per week was around 1,500 people dying of COVID-19 per week in December. So it continues to be an issue for the elderly and people with weakened immune systems. But what we're seeing, at least at the hospital level, I think we're seeing a little bit more of the influenza and people being really sick from that, mm. mostly unvaccinated.
0: Are you worried about new variants or subvariants?
1: Yeah, I think that the common misconception about mutations in any sort of infectious agent is that things naturally evolve to be less infectious. And that's not true. We're one mutation away from a really terrible uh, run with COVID. That being said, we're one mutation away from a really bad flu season, too. This is why public health vigilance is really important and public health measures are really important. And unfortunately, what we've seen is after the worst of the pandemic, um, much of the country has dismantled their public health infrastructure. That does worry me on an ongoing basis.
0: Hmm. The science protected us and then it's being rejected to some extent. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. And we can see that also from vaccination rates. As I said, COVID-19 vaccines when they first came out were game changers, but we know that there's a huge anti-vaccine push and it's now indiscriminate, not just against COVID-19 vaccines, but against vaccines in general. And we're seeing plummeting rates of childhood vaccination, like measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, things that we know save lives and prevent long-term complications for kids. And we're just seeing all of our rates of vaccines dropping oftentimes due to concerted efforts to impeach really high-quality vaccine science.
0: God, fascinating, the spillover effect. John, I know that you on the health beat have your eye on long COVID and what we are learning, I mean, sometimes on a daily basis about all of the various organ systems that this disease affects. Do you want to reflect on that a bit?
2: Yeah, you know, I guess I would say it's been a long time since I worried about getting hospitalized or dying because of COVID, but I do worry about the potential detrimental long-term impact of long COVID. And we've seen studies that have warned about the potential risk of multiple infections putting you at ongoing health Risk and putting you at risk potentially of long COVID. When you multiply those out to the broader population, and then what Dr. Mehta was talking about with people not getting vaccinated, you do worry about the long term impact on, you know, obviously nobody wants to get sick, but also just the population as a whole.
0: Yeah. And, you know, again, that's lungs, it's heart, it's brain. I mean, in terms of what we've had people complain about with long COVID. And we've seen drops in life expectancy since the start of the pandemic, haven't we?
2: That's right, especially those first two years. Yep. Well, Dr. Mehta,
0: before we go, any parting advice or prognostications?
1: I think it's really important to recognize that our vaccines still continue to protect people against being hospitalized, and dying from COVID-19. But we also have vaccines for influenza that do the same thing. And other routine vaccines, you know, we have new RSV vaccines for pregnant women and older adults. And so our vaccine science is really strong. Vaccines are not without side effects, and that has to be a shared decision-making conversation with somebody's medical providers. But Vaccine science is really strong and vaccines protect us. And so my recommendation to my friends, my family, what I do for my own kids is we stay up to date on, on whatever is recommended in terms of the vaccines that are out there and, and they still do something. I think there's a big misconception that the COVID vaccines don't do anything anymore. And I think that the 1,500 people dying a week in um, December and their families might disagree with that.
0: I'm up to date on my COVID vaccines. When do you think I should expect to get pricked again?
1: I think that we're evolving maybe to annual COVID vaccines. But if there's a sudden shift in the variants that could happen faster, Um, you know, flu, we know the season for flu, but I think that uh, COVID may become like that. We just don't know. It's a little bit too early. And as crazy as it sounds, climate change is impacting even the flu season. So we may see shifts in timing of flu vaccines over the next few years.
0: Well, just to reflect back on how dangerous things were for frontline workers early on and the mortality rates, I just want to say, with more oomph than I usually say this, I'm really glad you both are here. So, Dr. Mehta, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Ryan.
0: John, thanks for surviving. (laughs)
2: Thank you, Ryan. Same to you.
0: Dr. Anuj Mehta, along with our health reporter, John Daly, on the four years since COVID hit Colorado. And we're back in just a bit as Denver 7's Mike Nelson shares some good news about the mountain snowpack. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: Nothing chases away the winter chill quite like a good long soak in a hot spring. Colorado's western slope has dozens, from high-end resorts to wild springs in remote areas. Where can you find them and how exactly are hot springs created? CPR has those answers. Plus, learn more about the sacred significance of springs for our region's earliest residents, the Ute people. Soak it all up on Instagram. Find us at newscpr.
0: Oh, to be average. When it comes to weather, ordinary wouldn't be so bad yet we just endured an Arctic blast that stressed furnaces and left vulnerable people even more so. Some context now and a look ahead with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. He's back for our regular chat about weather and climate in Colorado. Hi, Mike.
4: Uh, good morning, Ryan. Yes, nice to be thawing out a little bit. Balds <laughs> well that ends well, you might say.
0: A century-old record fell when it hit minus 8 Sunday in Colorado Springs, factor in windchill, minus 24.
4: Uh, help us understand what we just
0: experienced, will you?
4: That was a very good shot of Arctic air, lasting about four or five days. It's cold in January during the wintertime, and we had an Arctic front come through that made it very, very cold. It doesn't mean that the world's not getting warmer from climate change, but it was really cold. For instance, in Denver, uh, we had a low of 19 below zero. Tuesday morning. And that tied a record that was set back in 1930. So that was almost a 100-year-old record as well.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you addressed that, because it's possible to have extreme bouts of cold even in the face of an overall warming planet. Let's just be clear about that.
4: Absolutely. And uh, it does not negate any of the science, because weather is moving... Air masses side to side. Cold fronts come through, warm fronts come through. This was an Arctic cold front that sloshed down from northern Canada and it sat around here for about four or five days and gave us very cold weather. Globally, the amount of energy coming in from the sun versus the amount going back out into space has changed because of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere Therefore, the planet is gradually warming up.
0: One interesting feature of these blasts of Arctic air is that some of the low-lying areas like Denver can actually be colder than the mountains,
4: you know, at at like 10,000 feet. It's so interesting because cold air is dense, all right? So it's heavy. It hangs down in the South Platte Valley. So it can be 25 below zero in Greeley. And over in Deckers to the southwest of town, where it's at 8,500 feet, it can be 40 degrees above zero. Or in Salida, it can be warmer because the cold air didn't come up over the Continental Divide. But if it does, and this makes it even more fun, if some of that cold air happens to go through a valley and pool in Fraser or pool in Gunnison, that bitter cold air can just stay there a very shallow layer, and they'll have ridiculously cold temperatures, while uh, if you go up the mountain a little bit, up on the pass, say, uh, it'll be a lot warmer. Okay, this I is... I love ho- wintertime forecasting because there's so much <laughs> variety. Yeah, this is fascinating. So I
0: should think of cold air as heavy and settling, and so you can get a kind of cold weather blanket on a place. Yeah, and
4: a big cool of cold air.
0: Yeah, that can happen at altitude or not so is another of these blasts possible are these all that unusual
4: i think this may well be our last big one of the winter season that happens sometimes where you get one really good shot and then it's kind of done and then our jet stream flow changes is more of a west to east flow instead of a north south flow and you don't get another one coming down Plus, we're in mid-January now, and if the weather cycle that, say, might be 30 or 45 days cycles another cold blast around, well, by that time, it's going to be early March, and you won't have as cold of air coming in as you would have in January. The sun angle is higher. You're getting close to spring, so this may be a one-and-done as far as the severe cold weather. We'll still get plenty of winter weather coming up, but... Uh, This is the time of year that you typically get the coldest.
0: Well, you invoked March there. I'm glad you did, because that's one of our snowiest months historically. And it does make me wonder about snowpack. I think we're like at 90% of median now. This is good.
4: We we had a snow machine over the past weekend. And uh, actually, there's winter storm warnings in effect right now. Uh, as we speak, up around the park range near Steamboat for perhaps another 18 to 24 inches of snow. They had four feet of snow or more up on Rabbit Ears Pass just over the weekend. So our snowpack has dramatically improved just in the last seven days, and that is because this storm system really set up a snowmaking machine. We had a strong jet stream coming in. We had this cold air that had pooled right up to the Continental Divide, and when those two things interact they can just dump snow in the mountains so even though we didn't get that much snow down here uh they had just amazing amounts up in the high country which is great news because prior to this we were way behind on snowpack it's good for our water supply it's great for skiing it is lousy for driving But uh, there's a lot of good things about getting some heavy mountain snow.
0: Right. I mean, we say that Blue Mesa is our largest reservoir. That's true in terms of man-made ones. But the largest reservoir for Colorado is its snowpack, is its ability to store water in the snow, in the mountains. Uh, Does this spell something for avalanche danger, though, and the sensitivity of the backcountry?
4: You know, that's a really great question because we had such a weak and thin snowpack before, right. and then suddenly you dump all this heavy snow on it. When you have kind of an old snowpack, it's gone through a bunch of freezing and thawing cycles. You get great big crystals of snow, and then they're almost like ball bearings. You put a big layer of snow on top of that, and it slides really, really oh, easy.
0: that is a great picture. I mean, it's it's not a great picture, but it's a, a well-painted picture.
4: It's okay. just so important. I mean, we have so many great ski areas. Stay inbounds uh, unless you really know what you're doing and you're fully equipped for backcountry. And you go through all of the right procedures. You've done the avalanche training. You let people know where you're going to be because somebody gets stuck in a slide out there, whether you're skiing or snowmobiling. Somebody else has to risk their life to go out and get you. Hmm.
0: The latest Climate Change in Colorado report is out from researchers at Colorado State University. Uh, The first two editions in 08 and 2014 were among the first state-level climate change assessments in the U.S. The top line for this year, warmer, drier, less water. Uh, Anything stand out to you about this report?
4: Uh, That is a trifecta of trouble because as we get warmer— the snowpack melts out sooner, starts later. Uh, if more of the precipitation comes down as rain instead of snow, that has an impact on our water storage. Drought is not just a lack of precipitation. Drought is a combination of evaporation and precipitation. So in our high desert area here, far from the oceans, if we have hotter temperatures, we're going to have more drought, even if we were to get the same amount of precipitation. And hotter If we don't make significant changes in the energy balance changes that are occurring, uh, basically, if we don't stop burning fossil carbon and adding the carbon dioxide at the rate we're doing, by the end of this century, we will have a climate more like that of Albuquerque or even southern New Mexico. Here in Denver, I mean, we're talking 20 to 40 days of 100 degrees or hotter every single summer. The hottest year that we had, and this came out of the report that they just brought out from uh, CSU back in 2012, that summer when we had 75 days of 90 or better, Mm. that will be a normal summer.
0: That is what we can expect in the future if we continue the behaviors with carbon that we're engaging in.
4: Now, I want to just take that a little bit further because- I think there's a sense out there that this is somehow um, policy-driven or ideology-driven. Carbon dioxide molecules, like a cancer cell, they, they don't have any ideology. They don't vote. They don't watch certain networks. They don't support certain candidates. They are very neutral on that. Carbon dioxide just does one thing. When it's in the atmosphere, it does a little wiggle that redirects infrared energy from just going through and going into outer space. When it's redirected, that means it's trapped. Think of it like a feather in a down comforter, and we're adding feathers to the atmosphere, so we're trapping more heat. They don't understand international boundaries, So it doesn't matter whether we put that carbon in the atmosphere or China put the carbon in the atmosphere or Europe putting the carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon in the atmosphere, which we're putting 100 million tons a day into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuel, just changes the heat balance of the planet, making the planet warmer. Thank you so much for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan.
0: Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us monthly to demystify climate and weather. Be right back with Mark Twain's visit to Colorado and other literary adventures. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: Home solar can help fight climate change, but that doesn't mean you should believe an ad like this one. Would you take a Tesla Power
4: Wall and brand new solar panels at no cost? Then you need to watch this before this program is gone for good.
1: The truth behind those social media solar ads many Coloradans are seeing on the latest episode of Colorado Wonders at CPR.org.
4: With support from the Colorado Health Foundation.
0: Now, a road trip you don't have to get out from under the covers for. Reading Colorado is a literary hopscotch across the state with passages organized by highways. So, for example, riding from along Highway 93, Golden to Boulder, or on the western slope, Highway 50 from Gunnison to Delta. Peter Anderson put this collection together. We spoke in September. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. We must, must, must start with an excerpt from the late great science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin, winner of Eight Hugos, Six Nebulas. What is the
3: piece and what is the place? The piece is an excerpt from City of Illusions by Ursula Le Guin, and the place is the Black Canyon National Park. She was inspired by Black Canyon because... She had come out there on a road trip in the 1950s with her children, and they, in the midst of her camp chores, had disappeared out towards the rim of the canyon. Uh, She discovered later that they were safe, thank goodness, but it definitely was a moment of panic there, and she never forgot it, and I think that's why later on she used that image of the Black Canyon for this city called Estoc, which spanned the canyon and was quite spectacular. And so the excerpt in the book is a description of that fictional city that she conjured up in her imagination.
0: Oh, goodness. What a, what a thing to build a community, you know, across a canyon. So why don't we hear the excerpt?
3: Sure, sure. The city of the Lords of Earth was built on the two rims of a canyon, A tremendous cleft through the mountains, narrow, fantastic, its black walls striped with green, plunging terrifically down half a mile to the silver tinsel strip of a river in the shadowy depths. On the very edges of the facing cliffs, the towers of the city jutted up, hardly based on earth at all, linked across the chasm by delicate bridge spans. Towers, roadways, and bridges ceased, and the wall closed the city off again, just before a vertiginous bend of the canyon. Estok gave no sense of history of reaching back in time and out in space, though it had ruled the world for a millennium. Estok was self-contained, self-nourished, rootless. Yet it was wonderful, like a carved jewel fallen in the vast wilderness of the earth. Wonderful, timeless, alien. Oh, gosh,
0: I love the adjective vertiginous, which I think captures the Black Canyon so well, don't you think, Peter? Absolutely. You're an essayist, a poet, the founder of the Crestone Poetry Festival. Was there a piece of writing you were totally ignorant of before embarking on this literary road guide?
3: Many, many. You know, I knew, I knew the literature of Colorado pretty well from having, having lived here since the 70s, but there were definitely some surprises along the way. For example, I knew of the poetry of Bruce Kiskadon, who is sort of the grandfather of cowboy poetry, but I didn't know that he had lived out east of Trinidad, between Trinidad and Springfield, and had started his cowboying career out in that neck of the woods. Oh, would you like to read something from him? Oh, absolutely. Bruce Kiskadon was, as I said, one of the grandfathers of the tradition of cowboy poetry. And um, he was a working cowboy and took time to write down a few lines. The thing I really enjoy about his poetry uh, is that he wrote with uh, a sense of the grittiness of, of the cowboy life, but he also wrote with a great sense of humor. Uh, both of those things, I think, show up in this short poem called Drinking Water. Uh-huh. When a feller comes to pond or a tank, it is better to ride out a ways from the bank, for the water is clearer out there as a rule, and besides it is deep and a little more cool. And out toward deep water, you notice somehow, you miss a whole lot of that flavor of cow. You can dip up a drink with the brim of your hat, and water makes pretty good drinking at that. You maybe spill some down the front of your shirt, but any old waddy knows that doesn't hurt. There may be some bugs and a couple of insects, but it all goes the same down a cowpuncher's neck. I know there's plenty of folks would explain why such water had art to be filtered or strained. Such people as that never suffered from thirst, or they'd think of it later and drink it down first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you are thirsty enough, it's okay if there's a fly in the water, I guess. It
3: doesn't matter. It doesn't
0: matter. In the Highway 160 section, so writings from Durango to Toyoc, you highlight the work of Regina Lopez White Skunk. Um, Maybe set an excerpt up for us
3: and, and then read it. Well, Regina Lopez White Skunk is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. She's many things she's a grandmother, an activist, and a writer. And in this essay, she talks about the act of walking as a form of prayer. Mm. She writes this. I hike into the canyons to see the rocks and the stories from long ago. I stop and feel saddened when I see bullet holes, words scratched in places that show disrespect for the story, a story that tells me of the trails and waterways of the surrounding landscapes. I go into these spaces to listen to the trees sing to me, and ease my restlessness, to seek a sense of healing from within. The earth is my connection to the knowledge of the land and the stories that are whispered in the gentle winds. I have prepared for ceremony in prayer. I have taken off my shoes. I have walked barefoot, connecting with our Mother Earth, seeking knowledge, strength, and grace. She feels and knows my steps, for I have tread on her before in prayer. I kneel down beneath a large cedar tree, allowing for the hundred years of wisdom to be communicated in a way no one will ever understand.
0: Mm. I think of walks as meditation, and I think that captures that very well. Absolutely. I also think of the fact that, as so many tribes were, before the United States government boxed them in, Uh, They were nomadic.
3: They moved. They walked. Absolutely. And the territory for the Utes kept getting smaller and smaller, you know, from almost the entire state of Colorado and into Utah to half the state to uh, a small fraction of the western slope territories to, you know, what is currently the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation and the Ute Reservation down by Ignacio, Southern Ute Reservation. Big names in
0: this collection, Jack Kerouac, Upton Sinclair, Stephen King, Willa Cather, Dalton Trumbo, and Zane Gray. Uh, But Peter, Mark
3: Twain? Well, he just barely, barely dipped into Colorado, Ryan, on his way out to Carson City, Nevada, when he uh, was having all the experiences that he would put into the book Roughing It. And that was in the early 1860s. There was a, a stage station out in what came to be known as Julesburg. Aha. That he spent a few days in that area. Should we hear Mark Twain writing about Colorado? Which, like,
0: as someone who used to live in Missouri, I just can't imagine Mark Twain that far from a river.
3: (laughs) Well, that's interesting that you should bring that up because, you know, you can imagine Mark Twain coming from the Mississippi. When he saw, you know, what passes for a river out in Colorado, (laughs) he wasn't too impressed. So, this is what he wrote about the South Platte. We came to the shallow, yellow, muddy South Platte, with its low banks and its scattering flat sandbars and pygmy islands, a melancholy stream straggling through the center of the enormous flat plain, and only saved for being impossible to find with the naked eye by its sentinel rank of scattering trees standing on either bank. The Platte was up, they said which made me wish I could see it when it was down, if it could look any sicker and sorrier. They said it was a dangerous stream to cross now because its quicksands were liable to swallow up horses, coach, and passengers if an attempt was made to ford it. But the males had to go, and we made the attempt. Once or twice in midstream, the wheels sunk into the yielding sands so threateningly that we half believed we had dreaded and avoided the sea all our lives, to be shipwrecked in a mud wagon in the middle of a desert at last. Yeah, that's interesting
0: because Westerners would see the South Platte and rejoice.
3: (laughs) Right. Yes, absolutely. From a distance, just seeing the line of trees and like, oh, thank God there's water up ahead, you know. Is there a certain portion of the state you couldn't find riding for? Not really. Uh, There were areas of the state that, uh, you know, I was more familiar with literature than others, places where I had lived, like Colorado Springs and Buena Vista, uh, San Luis Valley, four corners down by Durango and Mancos. I knew those areas pretty well. So areas like the northwestern corner of the state, I had to dig a little bit more. I'd been up through there, but I hadn't spent a lot of time, say, up around Dinosaur, Mm -hmm. Uh, or for that matter, out in eastern Colorado. You know, it's amazing. You can spend... 40 some odd years in Colorado and, and kind of hunker down the mountains and, and really have very little awareness of the eastern part of the state, which is almost half of the state. And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of great country out there, a lot of amazing landscapes and a lot of great literature too.
0: Yeah, you celebrate plenty of works from the Plains. You want to pick one and tell us about it?
3: Yeah, I'd like to read you a, a piece by a woman that wasn't necessarily a Plains dweller, she actually lived up in Steamboat Springs. Hmm. But a wonderful writer who I discovered at the Steamboat Springs Library, her name is Sariva Towler. And she has a book called The Boys at the Bar, Antics of a Vanishing Breed of Cowboys and Hellions. (laughs) Um, I'm sure people in Steamboat know about Sariva and also possibly past readers of the Denver Post where she wrote periodically. But I love this piece. She was clearly, even though she was a dweller in, in the mountains, she liked to travel. And she has this beautiful piece of advice for road trippers in her book. She says, travel slowly. Explore a country where a community is judged by the size of its grain elevator. And guys not only know what sorghum is, they keep close tabs on its market price. Search for a place where everyone can recite the 4-H pledge. Hmm read every historic marker, eat at the greasy spoon, and visit with someone driving a tractor. In other words, keep an eye out for places like Ray, Colorado. And this is a place that she wrote about focusing on the um, mating habits of the prairie chicken. And and as in a lot of her writing, she, she does so with a great sense of humor. She writes, nobody says I love you more convincingly than a prairie chicken. Mockingbirds sing, peacocks strut, bowerbirds build elaborate nests, egrets grow feathers, but prairie chickens do it best. They dance and croon at dawn and dusk. They lean forward, puff up their throat and ear feathers, drop their wings and fan their tails. The sound of air rushing from their inflated, bright orange neck sacks makes a booming sound as they stomp their feet and strut around in circles not unlike a Bronco quarterback after a touchdown. (laughs) (laughs) The best place to watch the mating dance of greater prairie chickens is in the grassy sandhills north of Ray, where 80% of Colorado's 10,000 chickens hang out near the Kansas and Nebraska state lines. The numbers come close to matching the people population in Yuma County, which issued only 73 marriage licenses last year, suggesting that prairie chickens may have far more fun courting in the cornfields <laughs> than do the locals. <laughs> Their eerie sounds and aerial leaps are generating economic development for the Ray Chamber of Commerce and East Yuma County Historical Society that, from mid-March until mid-May, haul voyeurs to the booming grounds. There, squinting into the cold and dark, birdwatchers and snoops can spy on roosters and hens cavorting on the lek under the educated eyes of Division of Wildlife, Yentas.
0: I love when something is both journalistic and poetic, and she blends the two brilliantly, just brilliantly. Great voice. Great yeah, voice, that's voice. right. A lot of voice in her writing. Yeah. Some very small towns make appearances in this collection. I was thrilled to see Hartzell near Salida. Antonito in the San Luis Valley makes an appearance. Laporte in northern Colorado. Are places like these as much characters as they are settings for characters?
3: Oh, I think so. Every every town kind of has a feel to it. And you talk to somebody like uh, Aaron Abeta down in Antonito, and you realize how many stories are embedded in that landscape. And I think the same is true for almost any small town. You know, if you dig around for a while, you're going to find some... Some really interesting stories. It doesn't matter, you know, how small the population is. And I think it's clear in the book from reading the entries from towns like Walden and Antonito, like you say, and Hartzell, that, you know, there, there's some really rich stuff that's um, just kind of a part of the landscape out there. Peter, yeah. thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you. It's been a, been a great delight. Peter Anderson compiled the literary
0: road guide, Reading Colorado. We spoke in September. Speaking of
2: reading. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring
3: like this.
0: There is still time to read with us. For February's Turn the Page, we've chosen a book about heartbreak and the science behind it. Author Florence Williams wrote this book after her 25-year marriage ended.
1: I felt like I had been plugged into an amplifier. Like I was buzzing with anxiety and grief and fear. And it it really just, I think, knocked me out and surprised me, like how physically I felt this kind of emotion, what I thought would be an emotional kind of situation.
0: (laughs) William's book is titled Heartbreak. And on February 7th, a Wednesday night, we're taking our show on the road to the Rialto Theater in, wait for it, loveland colorado and we won't just focus on being dumped but on the science of bouncing back
1: it really blew me away this advice i got that i had never heard before that we can find resilience in beauty and that if we can learn to cultivate beauty we can become more resilient
0: so read with us and see radio in the making. Again, heartbreak by Florence Williams is our latest book pick details and tickets at cpr.org/turn the page. Is Colorado Matters for today? With thanks to these bookish types
4: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielich, Anthony Cotton,
2: Pete Kramer,
1: Molly Cruz, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
2: Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum,
1: Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.